I'm Autumn Brown, alien, Sensodyne user, <laughs> mother of dragons, living on Dakota and Anishinaabe land, currently known as Minneapolis. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown, hooked on CBD turmeric spirulina gummies, a writer, student of miracles and love, emergent strategist and pleasure activist living in the land of the Lumbee peoples currently known as Durham. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity, even in the midst of Mercury retrograde. Um, <laughs> today, <laughs> we are so excited and I'm going to, I'm laughing about this. So I, we like to just let the listeners know what's real. We have been about an hour, I think at this effort right now of attempting to record what we're recording. So what's coming to you is of, of it's our commitment. It's our rigor. That's what you're feeling right now. It's like, we would not let go. We would not give up. We are here recording this podcast because we are in a conversation with two people that we deeply admire, that we both really look up to. And we want to make sure that this gets delivered to you. This is in our, our sibling series, which has been so elucidating for us. And um, it's really opened a lot of tender space about what it means to be siblings inside of movement. And today, the siblings we have are Aurora Levins Morales and Ricardo Morales. And Aurora, um, it, I know Aurora best through the work of Medicine Stories. I think that it is one of the most brilliant texts. I recommend it all the time. I feel like it's a guide for how we be, how we be with each other. And Ricardo Levins Morales is an incredible. And um, if you have been in movement for any period of time, you have most likely used images of Ricardo's imagining um, the beautiful art that helps accompany us in this journey of transforming the world. So we're super excited to have these cultural movement workers here with us today. And we always like to start out with a brief check-in. How are you right now today? I'm doing pretty well. Um, before we got on to the this call, I was sitting outside on the talking bench, which is where people meet. And we've been using it a lot more during the pandemic so we can be outside and have conversations and watching the birds and trying to figure out what those little fat birds that were hopping up the trunks were. Mm. And I'm just quite tickled to be here and be able to hang out with two fabulous Brown sisters and one fabulous Levin's Morales sister. Mm. So, good to be here. It's really good to have you here. Uh, Aurora, how are you? Well, I'm still high off my trip to the tropical fruit tree nursery a couple of days ago where I spent all my allowance and then some on a wild <laughs> variety of fruit trees, including the canistel, which people in the States probably don't know, which has the texture of a really dense, rich cheesecake and the taste of sweet potato pie with vanilla. And it's amazing. And I'm going to have my own tree. And I'm paying attention to the birds. Every morning I'm woken up by uh, woodpeckers arguing over whose dead tree it is. <laughs> That's right. And where are you, Aurora? I am in Indiera Alta, Maricao, Boriquen which is currently known as Puerto Rico in the Western mountains of Boricán. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much for making it possible to call into us because I know I'm like, you're literally in the wild. Um, and Autumn, how are you doing today, babe? Mm, I am, I am present. Um, I am like, I am sleep deprived. I'm quite sleep deprived. Um, navigating some, um, just like difficult, um, family stuff and, um, extended family, extended family. Um, family of the world. It's not me, y'all. It's not you, not you, not you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, yeah, just not, not enough, um, sleep, but I am, um, just like grateful for every moment. Yeah. Yeah. Grateful for every moment. How are you, sister? Mm. I feel, uh, today I feel good. I got to swim in. I got to spend time with a local beloved, uh, my, my friend Lola. And I'm at the precipice of, of life and death right now a lot. Like there's a lot of movement in both directions happening in my life. Um, and, um, two little Libra babies coming into the world. Um, and that's marvelous. And then, and then there are beloveds on their way in the other direction as well. And so I'm just really just kind of, I I feel like this, like if I could imagine, you know, imagine myself, I feel like my spirit is just sort of sitting at a particular gate and just kind of watching, watching and welcoming people in both directions. Um, so I feel good. I feel good. Um, and I really feel grateful that we're here and having this conversation. Um, I, you know, have admired both of y'all separately and it's really cool to see, like, I always love this moment of getting to see siblings in the same space. (laughs) Um, at the same time, I'm like, this is just cool. I can't believe this is life. So one of the places we love to go to, we call it our flume of rage. And it's a place for us to just top level, get some stuff off our chest. There's so much to be upset about in the world right now. And it's a way for us to, um, to let that go and also make sure we're keeping track of the world as it's changing. Petty, angry. Flume of rage, flume of rage, flume of rage, flume of rage. I'll go first. (laughs) So the thing I'm, I'm, I've been sitting in anger about is, um, this, image of, of Haitians at the border, um, and being chased by, by, um, officials on horseback with whips. And I can't shake it. I keep trying to shake it. And I think part of why I can't shake it is because among there's the pictures, there's all these pictures and they look like pictures where you could easily place them in any moment in history. Um, and the fact that they're now enrages me, but there's also all of these pictures of children being handed amongst the adults as the adults are trying to navigate the danger that's coming at them. And um, 
it's one of those places where the rage and the grief um, collapse into each other. And I can't really make it, I can't tell, you know, which one is which, but I look at these children's faces and these are people who are seeking asylum in the U.S. Um, for a number of reasons, in part because of the ways that the U.S. has contributed to destabilizing the government in Haiti, um, which, you know, if you've studied history at all, Haiti is one of the places that we look to and uplift as a revolutionary success story. It's one of the places that was able to say no um, to a lot of the patterns of colonization and was able to push back and push, push back. And, you know, empire doesn't like when we push back. And so empire um, continues trying to destabilize. And so that destabilization has happened over a long period of time. And then there's been this climate catastrophes that have happened there. Most recently, there was another earthquake. And so I don't know what happens to our empathy, um, just our human empathy under these conditions. It's like something shuts down. It's like, oh, (laughs) those people, they can't come here. It's like they, the idea that someone would travel this far for asylum to a place that offers asylum. And to be treated that way at the border, it doesn't surprise me. Um, And I I think I've said that before. I don't have a lot of surprise left in me when it comes to like what the U.S. does or allows to happen in its name and with its tax dollars. But it makes me angry and it makes me angry in a way that's like I really want us to figure out how we subvert, um, subvert the system that keeps us from being able to gather each other at those borders and and kind of in my mind, grab each other's hands and and arms and bodies and babies and pull each other across um, in in ways that make the border impossible. You know, it's like this border cannot even hold because we're holding each other so tightly. Um, But that's what's been sitting on me. And I keep like, I feel like every morning since I first saw the news, I just go and sit and spend time looking at those faces and thinking of, of, like what would be different if we understood that those children were our children, that they're all our children, that those are our brothers and sisters. It's, it's, it's all of us throughout time and space trying to find safety for our families. So uh, that's, that's what I've got. That's what I've got. I'm always in a state of rage about the recklessness of greed. Yeah. Which manifestation of it is in my face at the moment changes from day to day, but the disregard for life, whether it's a greed for money or power or some combination, getting deployed all over the world. And Haiti is very much on, you know, I'm living in Puerto Rico. We we were, we're like right next door. And one of the things that enrages me about Haiti is the way that it pops up into the news when there's a disaster for about two weeks and lots of aid go and get their pictures taken, handing out bottled water, and then it all disappears. And Haiti's been getting punished ever since the revolution for having had the gall to, to throw off slavery and even had to pay French slaveholders compensation for having freed themselves And, you know, when I listen to radical Latin American governments talk about support for Haiti, they say all of the Americas owes Haiti a debt. But 
you know, the coverage of it just makes me so angry because it it's constantly portraying Haitians as being in trouble because they don't know how to live right. You know, that it's somehow Haitians can't get it together or be having these ramshackle houses that fall down. And it's like if you stopped extracting every last drop you could out of Haiti and paid compensation for everything you've extracted ever since the revolution, they'd be fine. And I have that same rage about Puerto Rico. You know, the fact that there's this fiscal board of control claiming that the colony owes the colonizer billions of dollars when they've been extracting, even apart from everything else, a surcharge on everything imported to Puerto Rico. So like cars here cost 20% more, same car. Many, many products are more expensive here because of the way the U.S. controls the, the flow of anything into Puerto Rico. So, you know, I just have a litany of things in my mind moves from, you know, like what's happening to the people, the indigenous people who are in the path of palm oil plantations in the Amazon. And the fact that there's a huge media storm about one white woman being murdered and native women are being killed and disappeared at a horrifying rate and it never makes the news. So yeah, all of that stuff has me in a rage. I want to say, you know, I know the value of, of, of going there. It's really important. And rage doesn't drive my activism. And I have to kind of settle it down because otherwise I get sick from it. For me, it's joy is what drives my activism. And if I go to the into the rage, my you know, I'm epileptic. I have heart conditions. I'm diabetic. My body is like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And so I'm always looking for the good news stories buried in the horrific ones. Where did somebody figure out a hack? Where did somebody make an unexpected alliance? And that's the stuff that makes me able to tolerate the rage. I really appreciate that. You know, I think that that's something that we share, you know, this, this podcast is really oriented towards like, what are the solutions and what are the successes? And we, you know, especially in this past couple of years, we found that we're like, we need to like have a release valve. It's almost, I just got an instant pot from autumn for my birthday and the little steam valve, you know, after the rice cooks and it's just like, that's the flume of rage. Right. Um, Ricardo, anything you want to add in this? Yeah. I tend to recoil from hot flashpoint rage because it feels like it could overwhelm. There's so many reasons, but I also, and this is similar to what Aurora said, I experience it all as the same rage, right? Um, and all for the same reasons, whether we're talking about Haiti, and I've been writing recently about the Haitian revolution, you know, which is, also feels fresh in a way, right? Um, and that right now, there's a struggle going on in East Phillips neighborhood in my city over a piece of land where the city has been wanting to put a toxic polluting truck yard. And the community has been trying to create an indoor urban farm and resilient center, right? And the city is saying, well, we've spent so much money on this. If you want the right to not 
breathe toxic air and be poisoned, you have to compensate the city $12.9 million for the money that we already spent in an effort to poison you, right? You know, all of it, it all fits in. And I also think about, you know, hearing about some toxic abuse happening in an intimate relationship among people. And also and that really brings to the fore that it's so hard to distinguish sadness from rage, right? And of course, as a male, sadness often expresses itself in anger. But where I go really is to simmering anger, simmering rage. And somehow that feels like it gives me more space to breathe and to see and to think about what's happening. It's not these flames in front of my eyes, it's this simmering pot. So where what's been on my mind lately is I've been seeing in the media and the newspapers and such, these articles, these scientific breakthroughs that are all about these wonderful things that Western science has discovered this amazing fact that life is all connected, that trees talk to each other, that bodies are resilient, and that the mind and the body are not separate things. OMG, this is wonderful news, right? And it's both, it's one of these complex things because yes, I'm so glad you're figuring that out. And isn't that what people have been persecuted, ridiculed, imprisoned, murdered for, for knowing these things? I mean, what were the boarding schools created for? To stop this flow of intergenerational knowledge about how the world works because that knowledge is incompatible with capitalism and within extraction and, you know, the, and, but it, on the other hand, it also provides, reveals opportunities because all of a sudden we see the pinnacles of the capitalist system turning against science, um, funding these anti-science medieval attitudes to attack rationality because science, which has always been such a loyal servant to capitalism for the last 400 years or so as a technical means to figure out how to extract wealth from everything is all of a sudden coming up with insights that undermine the entire central core faith and operating system of the system. Like attacking climate science isn't just about individual corporations profits. It's about if you admit that accumulations of harm actually accumulate and cause tipping points and mess shit up, you can't do that anymore. So that's that's what my rage is. Amen. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love the, you know, the spider nature I see in you uh, weaving it, you know, like we're all in the web under, you know, seeing these patterns together. And Autumn, I wonder where you are in that pattern. Damn, I'm just like, all right, here we go. <laughs> I'm so excited to, um, I'll, I'll say what my rage is in a moment, but right now I'm just like, oh wow, I'm just so excited to be sitting at the feet of Ricardo and Aurora, who are poets and historians. And it's just, you know, it's um, very humbling. Um, so I just wanna co-sign everyone else's rage. Um, and, um, I don't know, I think the, this piece that you were lifting up, 
Ricardo about like the, you know, the fractal nature of toxicity that like the toxic relationships that happen in intimate spaces and then the, um, the extractive relationships and abusive relationships that, um, the government and corporations have with people in communities, you know, it's like that, uh, I, cause I see and have directly experienced myself that same dynamic where it's like, I'm going to extract all of this from you and then demand that you compensate me if you want me to stop extracting resources from you. <laughs> I've experienced that directly interpersonally. Um, and, and, you know, in many ways in my life, still navigating those exact same dynamics of, of someone who wants to extract resources from me and also wants me to pay them, um, <laughs> for the things that they've taken. And, um, and it, what boils my blood about it. Um, and, you know, I, I feel similarly to what, other folks have described, like I can, I can notice and feel the ways that my rage and anger can make me sick, you know? Um, and that like, it's through the processing of it that I avoid becoming sick. I was sick on and off for many years because of the fact that I was just constantly suppressing the rage. Um, but what boils my blood is the way that that narrative is just not recognized by our society like whether we're talking about the global nature of the extraction and abuse or whether we're talking about the level of intimate relationship, like the screaming that a woman in our society has to do in order for anyone to even believe her that, that someone else is extracting resources from her and that that in and of itself is just not okay. Just the baseline. It's not okay. Um, it's just outrageous to me. And you know, and I, I, I have direct experience with this. And then I also see these narratives across my community. I'm in touch constantly with other women who've experienced the same kind of extraction and abuse. And it's the same. It, everyone, everyone I know has had the same experience, which is like, no one believes me. No one cares. <laughs> everyone wants to ascribe whatever is happening to me to some other, like some other view or way of framing the problem that makes it like a both sides issue. And, um, it is, it's just so out of pocket and so gaslighting to be inside of it, you know? Um, especially because like when you're inside of it, you can see how totally out of pocket it is. And it just makes you feel like, um, how is it that I could keep saying this to people and they could keep having the same reaction? You know, um, how many, how many times do we have to throw ourselves against this wall before we realize that the wall itself has to come down? Um, yeah. So I'm just sitting with the, I'm sitting with that, the fractal nature of this problem. Yeah. I really appreciate that. You know, I keep thinking of that poem, if they come for you in the morning, they'll come for me at night, like that piece where it feels like that that's the ultimate piece. It's like, if we allow that for people to come for the children and to come for the, the partners and to come for um, the parents and to come for the nations and to come for the earth and to come for the oil. And I mean, like, it's like, it's like, it doesn't end. And I'm, 
I keep, I'm thinking about that song, um, Greed by Bernice Johnson Regan. I've been thinking about how to talk about greed. I've been thinking about how to talk about greed. I've been wondering if I could sing about greed. I really feel like Aurora naming the greed. It's like you put, you know, that's a precise point, right? It's like it's there, <laughs> you know, it's never enough it, when you're an extractive orientation in the world, it's never enough. Um, uh, thank you all for the vulnerability, for letting us see and weave together. And we can just take a deep breath in together with our listeners and let it out. There's also things to be, um, to claim victory in, right? Um, a lot of, of women spoke up and screamed and, and now R. Kelly is actually facing a consequence, right? And who knows how long this will last. <laughs> we see the consequences get turned and flipped and everything, but we know, we know what led to this consequence. And I want to particularly shout out Dream Hampton for the piece of cultural work and storytelling that she did to elucidate um, the situation. And the work of the Mute R. Kelly crew, because I'm like, you know, it's we're in this age of trying to figure out what consequences look like and talk about cancel culture and all these different things. But there are these situations where it's like, oh, this is we can see directly, directly, directly. Here's something that um, here's a place where we needed an intervention at this scale and we can make it culturally. And um, it'll, I think, change lives because it's been made. I just had one more thing that came to mind, which is one of the places that I have a hot simmer mm. and it relates to what you just said about consequences mm-hmm. is the, the intensity with which the doctrines of despair are preached at us, mm-hmm. the intensity with which our victories are erased, attributed mm-hmm. to others that, that, it's impossible is the is the constant mantra. It's not possible to create change. It's not possible mm-hmm. to live differently. It's not and the and the work all of us do is about planting possibility. It's about saying, yeah, but what if it is? That's right. But the degree to which we're constantly, you know, I grew up as a teenager in the women's movement, and now I hear that it didn't accomplish anything. And you know, I think about what this circumstances you know when i was in my teens job advertisements were segregated by gender and uh-huh. if you got married you got fired and right there was absolutely no legal restraint whatsoever on sexual harassment but then you know that that's one of the places where i get really angry is the erasure of memory that leaves people yes believing the story that what is has always been this way. It's just human nature. It's just the way things are. And I think that's kind of a deep engine level grinding pissed off place in me that drives some portion of my work about, yeah, but what if it is possible? And look what we've already done. And we could do just like two inches over from where we are. Exactly. That's right. I mean, you know, if we remember the things that we have actually succeeded in, it, it fuels us. We are so much more powerful when we know that we've already created change, you know, 
Um, and as you started telling a bit of that storytelling, I'm like, okay, good. We're ready for the storytelling from y'all. <laughs> We're ready to understand the movements that you have shaped and been a part of. And, um, you know, the place where we like to start this interview off is just where y'all from, where y'all from, like in whatever ways come up for the answering of that question. Where are y'all from? We are from the top of a mountain where you can look out and see the north and south coasts of Puerto Rico. It's an abandoned, it was an abandoned coffee farm that my blacklisted communist parents bought in 1951, 90 acres for $4,000 because they couldn't get work. And an elder in the communist party said, buy land and that way you won't go hungry. And after 52 years in the States, I've moved back to that land. But this place up in the sky, in the middle of the Caribbean, with a view out over this beautiful landscape, is the place that we're from. And I just wanted to say my mother's family is from Puerto Rico and has indigenous ancestry going back 7,000 years in this, this land. And we'll get to my dad. Dale, hermanito. Okay, pues. Um, so I am from the same place, um, right where the line, the imaginary line that separates the municipality of Maricao um, borders on the municipality of Yauco, a line that has moved around a little bit, but always been close. And we've been on the Maricao side. Uh, and it's really being living up in the sky <laughs> right near what I call the largest body of water on earth, which is the sky, which is where we got all our drinking water, all our washing water, we collected it on the roof. That is so deeply ingrained that, I mean, it was our parents who moved onto that land. It's not like our family has been on that land, particularly for generations. But when I found myself at age 11 and 12 wandering the streets of Chicago, Oh, living in a place that didn't, did not know my name right? and having to accustom, accustom myself to new sounds and new, new information to be safe in this new environment. I created a channel in my mind whereby I would send parts of myself that needed protection back into the care of the Guaraguaos, which are the little red-tailed hawks that patrol the skies over the coffee mountains. And that is how I was able to take the risks that it took to be where I was, because I knew I had put part of myself into safekeeping where nobody was going to mess with it. And within a few years, right, um, when I was 13, it was like, I've been gone long enough. No, I was a quiet kid. I was, I didn't talk much. I was an observer, not outgoing, and not somebody who would just create opportunities and make them happen. But I was so adamant that I needed to get back there that somehow I managed to get my parents to send me back to Puerto Rico. 
to visit on my own. And that's where, you know, I stayed in San Juan with the editor of Claridad, the Independentista newspaper. And that's where my first cartoon was published. <laughs> I was hanging out in the office and then he drove me up to the mountains and dropped me off back up on the farm. There were some people sitting, staying there. I stayed with them. But anyway, that's where I'll always be from. I want to say something about that moment Ricardo is describing because I spent 52 years in the States about every detail of this land. It's, it's so ingrained in me. I feel like I'm my blood is full of red clay. And at the same time, I was 13, Ricardo was 11. We got picked up and plopped down in Hyde Park in Chicago. And it was a really profound shock to the system. Where we were, it was very black, white, um, segregated. And Puerto Ricans were on the north side and people didn't know what to make of us in terms of the sort of race-based groupings and alliances. But the being separated from the ecosystem that had created us was really the most profoundly painful thing. I remember um, going out into the backyard of the house that my parents had bought and it was this baked hard dirt and I couldn't believe it was real earth. And I asked her, how far down does it go? And she said, what do you mean? It goes all the way down. It's like, I thought it was some kind of weird window box because it didn't look alive to me. And that there were trees planted at like, you know, 10 foot intervals and little holes in the pavement just physically hurt me that the roots couldn't talk to each other, that there wasn't, that, that was the most painful thing because we were raised by an ecosystem. We were raised by the mountain. And also our father was an ecologist and our mother was a, a painter and an amateur naturalist. And so we were super aware of the interconnectedness of that ecosystem. And then to suddenly, uh, the year we landed in Chicago, there was a massive die-off of alewives along the shore. There were dead fish along the edges of the lake. And it really kind of felt like the end of the world in a lot of ways. Yet, that's where... I learned alliances with people who had different lives than mine. It's where, you know, as young activists in Chicago, we were in all kinds of things that we wouldn't have had access to in Puerto Rico. And in the 1990s, I came back for a literary conference and realized what a different writer I would have been had I not been yanked out of Puerto Rico and plopped down in Chicago, where there was the Black Panthers and there was the women's movement and there was anti-war activism and where my poetry came out into the air in the context of movement, in a collective space. And what kind of poet, I would have been a poet either way, but what kind of poet would I have been living in this poor community as the daughter of a university professor and not being in that ferment that was the late 60s and early 70s in the United States during my adolescence. So I'm also from that displacement, that shock, and all of the gifts that shock brought to me, even though it took a long time to be grateful yeah, one of the one of the things 
that that displacement taught me was disguise. You know, that like the lizards that would change color on the farm, depending on whether they were on green leaves or brown earth. And that there was so much disguise and perception. Um, you know, Aurora say, talking about how nobody knew how to place us. And I found myself just even in the, the, my speech patterns, I had different speech patterns among the white people who were willing to accept me by pretending I was white than among the black folk. You know, just I would talk differently. I would pick up these different ways of talking. Um, in high school, I was recruited into the Black Student Union, which actually had been banned, so we had to meet in secret. But Nanuri, one of the activists there, came marching up to me one day when I was outside the high school selling the Black Panther newspaper on one arm and the Young Lord's newspaper on the other arm. And she squinted up into my face and said, what are you? <laughs> and then she said, okay, come with me. I need you to help me put out the, the underground newspaper, right? But also that was an environment where that wasn't that strange, that I was not recruited into the Black Student Union as a make-believe Black person, right? There's a way in which and this is something that I feel is one of the things that I, that's in real contrast to what happens now. You know, Aurora mentioned the Black Panthers. We were both drawn into doing support work for the Panthers in an organization. And one of the ways in which they were organizing, I interpret as saying that even though Fred Hampton and, and his crew were deeply rooted in Black identity and in Black struggle, identity was something you would bring to the table of solidarity, where you'd sit down with other people with their own identities. It was not an enclosure, it was an, a, a door to open, right? Not a brand to defend against, you know, with copyright protection. So disguise, learning, and that's again, both, like all of these things, it's both a wound and a blessing because it meant I needed to learn how to listen and move in waters that were not my own and hear how other people thought about things. My deepest education in some ways was eavesdropping. You know, Aurora talks about listening to other people. Well, I became fascinated with reading the things that people in different communities wrote to each other, right? So like the internal newsletters of the women's liberation movement, or when the black writer, women writers started doing their own thing, reading that, or the gay liberation stuff after Stonewall, or the magazines that would be put out by African liberation movements. Just, I just wanted to know what the world was like because it clearly was an amalgam in some ways of all these different ways of thinking about it. My experience was similar, but it was also different because of gender. There were places Ricardo could enter and hang out that were not safe places for me to enter and hang out. And it's interesting that Ricardo was recruited um, to do that work with Ninure, with the Black Student Organization, kind of as Black adjacent. Um, but that partly had to do with the Jufro that you were wearing and that we had the same skin color my hair was more straight, kind of curly, but not, I, I couldn't do the fro thing. 
and we got categorized differently. And also he could hang out in certain street and public places that as a, as a girl were not okay places for me. So I got pushed toward white spaces and the relief of starting to have women of color caucuses within the women's movement was overwhelming. The appearance, the flood of new publications of poetry coming out, the lead being black women writers really shifted a lot of things for me, but I did want to name that we had different access to different communities on the basis of, of gender. And I was the youngest member of the Chicago Women's Liberation Union. You know, I was there and people talk about it having not all white, me and my mama were there. <laughs> wow, this is such a beautiful, like, I, I feel like we're following you down these streets, you know? Um, and appreciate you naming both like what was possible because of the time and movement that's different from like the time and movement we are in right now and like the kinds of alliances that were possible and also the kinds of alliances that weren't possible based on the time period that we're describing. Um, it's just so interesting to think about like how in some ways in this contemporary moment, things are so opposite of what you're describing, <laughs> right? Um, so... That's just interesting. But we, but what we wanted to do, and I think I wonder if I'm going to try to combine a couple of questions here because we have this question that we've been asking siblings about your process of politicization, you know. And one of the things we've noticed in the interviews is that families that grew up, our kids, siblings that grew up in families where the parents had a really explicit political orientation um, often had different experiences around their politicization than the than the siblings who were like we sort we we entered movement in a different way um so hearing that like your you your family had like it sounds like a explicit communist orientation and then you have this dad who's a university professor which i assume had something to do with the relocation i'd be curious to know about that but if you could just sort of take us there like okay what is it about your dad and also like, how would you describe that journey around politicization and to what extent you were sort of breaking away from the home orientation into something else due to that amalgam nature of the movement at that time? Well, yeah, I mean, it's time to get to our family because that's also where we're from. My father was a fifth generation radical in his Ukrainian Jewish family. He, his Grandmother who raised him was a feminist and a labor organizer, went to hear uh, Emma Goldman and um, just a bunch of other important speakers of the day at the early 20th century. Her grandmother walked, she was the wife of a rabbi and walked out of synagogue because of the sexism. She was a better scholar than her husband and she wasn't allowed to be a rabbi. And she walked out and took him along. And she wrote, my, my great grandmother wrote that her grandma had planted a revolutionary spark in her. Um, my father's father was a leader of the uh, Young Communist League, and um, in his late teens, was um, they they split with the socialists over the question of World War One, which the, the the communists were against any kind of support for the war. So that was the atmosphere of my father's growing up was in a household full of communists. My mom's family was not 
political, except for she had an uncle, Juan Sen, who we much later found out was a, a gun runner for the Nationalist Party. But she grew up in a, in a family that was not politically active in any way, but she went to Hunter College and took a philosophy course and found her way to Marx and said, this makes sense out of my life. So our parents met, they were 18, going on 19, when they met at a communist youth evening, and they instantly fell in love. <laughs> and their, their second date was the skill riot in uh, when Paul Robeson attempted to sing and, and uh, right, white supremacists attacked the concert. And their third date was a lecture by, um, oh gosh, I'm having word retrieval problems. Claudia Jones, black Trinidadian communist feminist um, who was giving a talk on feminism, which was known in those days as the woman question. And my parents, uh, my, my mother said, how does this apply to us? And my dad said, let's be faithful for 88 years and then review the question. That was his proposal. They traded rubber bands, which they wore on their ring fingers. Nobody noticed. They had some opposition from the family. When they married, it was right as the Korean War was breaking out. They didn't know what was going to happen in terms of my father getting drafted. Um, my, they, they sat on a park bench in Ithaca and said, what should we do? And decided that they would try out my mother's country, get to know Puerto Rico, because they expected that the war was going to, in some way or another, separate them, that my father would be jailed for refusing to go to war. He was also, at that point, had been informed that he would not get any work as a communist. He was a biologist, and he was told, no go. They moved to Puerto Rico in 51. Um, my dad was on a walk one day and a woman approached him who was a member of a secret cell of the Nationalist Party and said, the FBI is going everywhere that you apply for jobs, so you're not going to get any work here. And that's when they just bought this farm as a way to tide over that political period where they raised hens and vegetables and kids and my dad peddled the vegetables and eggs from the back of a rundown truck. And they lived this life up in the mountains as part of a small group of communists. The thing is, we grew up in a house full of books and ideas and discussions, and people would drive four hours from the city to have meetings and, and learn from my father. They underestimated my, mother's, underestimated my mother seriously and didn't pay much attention to her. My, my mother was every bit as brilliant as my father, but my father was a famous scientist, and so he got a lot of the brilliant points from the outside world. Um, the thing is that they were joyful people. They were people with, with a passionate, a passionate attachment to a liberated future. And it, it wasn't abstract. I remember how excited my mother got when she heard about a program in, in Brazil where used traffic signs were being recycled to build homes for poor people. She'd grown up poor. She knew what that was. People would talk about there's not a dime's worth of difference between these two politicians. She'd say a dime is a lot. A dime can save a life. So she was both fiercely 
um, hopeful about the future and about the possibilities and and really had the best uh, bullshit detector that I have ever met in my life. Um, but she was also supremely practical. My father had a sense of history that stretched way back. And so he knew all kinds of Puerto Rican history. He had talked with so-and-so who remembered so-and-so who, so he had stuff from, you know, the late 19th century. We were always getting taught political lessons that were stories out of different moments in history. Well, you know, when these parties were arguing about such and such in the 1890s, you know, he taught us to think long-term, um, you know, to, to have a big picture sense of change and to know that you can't always tell in the moment if you're winning or losing, that that's something that history determines. And so for me, that has always made it less upsetting when we face defeats, because I know that sometimes defeats lead to victories end up sabotaging much bigger ones. And, you know, that it's a much bigger, more complex picture than we think. And my father, as a, both a scientist and a political thinker, fully embraced and loved complexity. One of his little catchphrases is the truth is the whole. You can't know the truth without the whole big complex picture. So I feel like we were raised with a mindset that then we got to take and apply to the different places we went. And you're right, we didn't get politicized in, in an act of rebellion with our family. We, we were born politicized. And then we had to find our each of our ways to make that our own to not be, as Ricardo once put it, not the children of activists, but activists in our own right. But I think about them every day. I, I hear their heads and their, their, I hear their voices in my head. I have their pictures on the wall. They're my, they were my closest comrades. And in a way they still are. They're points of reference in my life. So I am forever grateful. And that, that idea, that sort of long-term perspective that is kind of an insulation in, in a way against despair also really um, resonated with the experience, I'll just speak for myself, of growing up in the forest and just really being able to, without belaboring the point, just seeing that everything happens in cycles and with lag times and if a puddle fills with water faster than it empties, it, it overflows. And if it drains faster, then it dries out and you can't fast forward a bird's egg to get to the good part, right? And nothing had, so just these ideas of ebbs and flows and cycles is something that I brought with me also. And even though we landed in Chicago in a time of revolution really right a lot of uprising a lot of conflict and immigration and adolescence all hitting at the same time dang but when all of that disappeared um and sort of the movement ebbed again it wasn't an existential crisis oh my god the world is not the way i expected it's, oh okay the tide is out now what do we do when the tide is out so that we'll be ready when the tide comes back in 
and so that people can get what they need during this period. So these kinds of, um, that's sort of the, the long term. And I find myself, one of my roles in movements, right, and having been in this for 50 years, is like during one time, it's always talking about what isn't there. What is it that we're not seeing and not feeling and, and need to compensate for or look ahead to? In times when there's no movement, people can't imagine movements coming back. Then the movements arise and people aren't thinking ahead to when the tide goes out because this is all they've experienced. So a lot of my voice, what I'm, what's coming out of me is always changing depending on what the conditions really are, right? And looking at, looking for the contradictions. Where is the healing in the pain? Where are the dangers in the healing? That's where our mother's bullshit meter comes in really handy. You know, not taking every, anything for granted and even safety can conceal danger and danger can conceal gifts. Um, our, when we landed there, there was a lot, that, it was kind of a crash landing, right? And we had a mother who was drinking heavily a father taking care of her. Um, mommy's advice or request to Aurora and I was, okay, you're out there in the world and you're out there in the streets of Chicago and whatever you do, don't tell me. <laughs> I don't want to know about it. I don't want the stress, right? And both of us moved out of home as teenagers and we were living in, and both of us dropped out of high school. And one of the things that I realized, I know that I, in some way, for much of my life, I tended to over-romanticize that narrative about how well I was able to cope and be a grown-up at age 15 and figure all this shit out. And the only reason I would be, well, what about those splitting headaches? <laughs> what about those stomach aches? What about the deterioration and the chronic pain in my skeleton? But at the same time, one thing, and this is the experience in movements is very different for everybody, right? And there's a lot of trauma involved. But for me, the traumas of various sources that I had experienced in my life, I mean, trauma is about losing power, about having power taken away by whatever cause. And for me, my experience of engaging in those movements was to be among people who were helping to restore power to people whose power had been taken away. So for me, it was like, oh, this is trauma therapy. Of course, I didn't have that language. And even though I know that for some people, it, the experiences are all very different based on so many vectors of oppression, but it has left in me this hunger and this conviction that if you are working in movements for social justice and it is depleting you, it's not being done right. That is not how it should be. Healing should be healing because we're talking about healing a world and that should be healing ourselves. And there's something that needs to be healed if there's a discrepancy and a disconnect between those two. Oh, my goodness, my goodness. Y'all are just such a gift. The poetry, the history, the wisdom, the lessons. And, you know, we always ask this question of like, what's aligned about what you're doing in the world and, and what feels distinct. And I hear the alignment, right? I hear the alignment of, of being rooted in healing, rooted in joy, rooted in possibility, rooted in imagination, um, rooted even in this interstitial space of displacement and rooted in that legacy of radicalism. Like there's, I mean, it's powerful to hear all of that. So I would be really interested in hearing what 
where you all think that you are distinct in terms of, of what you're doing, because you're both, you're artists, you're poets, and yet there are real distinctions in terms of how you show up and they might just be form. It might be some ideological distinctions, um, but I would really, be, we would love to hear, you know, like where, where are those, even if they're small, those places of distinction. We chatted briefly about that this morning and we're thinking about, you know, we, we bring the same set of perceptions and kind of ways of thinking about the world and ways of thinking about trauma and healing and applied them not only to different areas of social movements, but also worked in different ways. And I mean, one of the really significant shaping factors in that is my chronic illness and disability. So that I have not primarily, although I've impacted a lot of organizations, I have not primarily joined organizations or done traditional kinds of organizing. I can't sit in meetings. I can't go to conferences. I need a lot of rest. I need to limit my overstimulation, particularly the movement culture of that period. Some of that has eased, some of it hasn't. But, you know, there was a tremendous leave your body behind and sacrifice and die for the revolution. And I had epilepsy and I had blood sugar issues and I was a survivor of sexual trauma. And so my ways of working were different and we gravitated toward different arenas. But as Ricardo Ricardo was saying this morning that like whenever we came back together and there were points of where we had more contact and less contact for a lot of reasons, but we we could cross fertilize very easily because our, our frameworks were the same. We were just applying them in different ways. I was very active in the women's movement. I was later active in the sort of sexual assault survivor movement. I was, um, we were both active in Latin America solidarity work, but we were in, you know, I was in California and he was in Minnesota. So the, who we were working with was different. I was from an early point, very active in, in explicitly Jewish left circles. And that's something Ricardo wasn't doing so much. Um, we didn't talk about this earlier, but we spent the summer of 1968 in Cuba. I was 14 and Ricardo was 12. And it was a powerful, powerful experience. I've been back three times. Ricardo hasn't. I've had more of an ongoing relationship with people there. Um, the role of Cuba as a point of inspiration has been really important in our family. We have different relationships to it. Um, you know, so I, I experience it primarily as a, as a difference in, the, in how we work and where we work. We pay attention to slightly different things or very different things, but we think in a similar enough way that there's always an exciting conversation to have. That, that's my first, first pass at that question. Awesome. I love that. Ricardo, would you add to that? Are there other distinctions you see? Um, you're on mute, love. Yeah, I, our, you know, it's, Reflecting what Aurora said, that our trajectory took us to different places, 
mean, for when I left Chicago, I was li living for a while in a little factory town in New Hampshire. Aurora had already moved to California. And there was no internet in those days. And long distance phone calls were expensive. And neither of us had much in our pockets in terms of pocket change, right? So that's one of the reasons that, you know, communication, there were letters in those days, but it, there were periods when we weren't directly in contact. But again, when we did cross paths or come back together, we were very easily able to exchange nutrients and absorb the insights that we'd gathered in our own different realms. I was became very active over many years, over decades in the labor movement um, and in, in different movements and in organizing. Um, once I remember Aurora, you saying something in describing our difference, which was years ago, about how you were, had sort of been taken a current more into like, um, I guess you could call it elderhood, even if that's not what you were calling it at the time. Whereas I was sort of more into, had taken a route more into organizing. But it's really become clear to me that when the ways in which you interact with the organizations that you interface in are organizing and are based on a really deep um, grounding in what organizing means, often more so than the people who you're interacting with. So that you're bringing that accumulated with both indirect and direct organizing experience. Another thing, I mean, there's a lot, of course, of difference that is gender-based. I mean, I remember, and this is part of my eavesdropping and learning from other people's experience. I remember in our living room in Chicago once, overhearing our mother giving Aurora advice. Mm. Um, Aurora had just been coming home and had crossed the street and a male driver had stopped his car in order to let her pass. And Rosario was giving her advice on the proper protocols, which is that you nod in their direction to respectfully acknowledge, but don't smile ah. and don't make eye contact. And it was like, okay, here we are landing in a new place and learning that new landscape. Oh, Aurora's landscape is different from mine another lesson uh -huh. in perspective, right? I traveled a lot hitchhiking across the country. I racked up 26,000 miles. And that was for me, one of my schools in how to sit with somebody with politics that I find toxic and find where are the points of commonality? Wow. How many geological layers do I need to go down to find common ground with somebody? That was not... Open as, I mean, Aurora has hitchhiking experience, but not to the same extent. And it was a whole different world, you know, and mm -hmm. there were a lot of gender protocols there. You know, if a woman wanted to get to Boston and there were dudes around who were hitchhiking that way, they joined forces for protection, right? Um, for, for protection of her. But I didn't know till later how many of my women friends who hitchhiked were sexually assaulted uh -huh. on the road, right? But still my language around organizing, at least in my head, has a lot to do with geography. How do we get from here to there? How do we follow the North Star? What do we do when we're following the North Star and there are swamps in the way? Right, right. right. Because that was my experience. You get from uh, one place to another. Wow. Mommy and I both do sewing and gardening metaphors. Sewing, uh, gardening, <laughs> and cooking metaphors in our thing a lot. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot about gardening and cooking in particular when I talk about social justice and change and 
you know, you do the work now about about talking about the social soil, but I've used, you know, soil garden metaphors since I was quite young, because that's what I, that's a terrain I could explore. Like what, which things grow in my garden and which things don't. I always had little window boxes or potted plants. And how do you really cook, how do you cook Puerto Rican food when you're living in Oakland, California? Uh-huh. <laughs> and how do you make a recipe that has that, where, where do you adapt a recipe? Where do you hold firm mm. to certain ingredients and procedures? And so I learned a cooking where I had to go to Chinatown to get cilantro. It's a, it was a, my experience taught me kind of in similar ways to the way that hitchhiking taught you, Ricardo, um, but it's very gendered. Uh-huh. I, I remember when you were sleeping on the roofs of university buildings in the summertime, and it just gave me the heebie-jeebies thinking about closing my eyes in a public place like that as a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really frightening. Mm-hmm. I think also mm-hmm. this sort of leads into your question about kind of what to know about each of us. And we were realizing it's kind of how we know each other that's more interesting to us than explaining <laughs> each other to the world. But that Well, I'll just say, just so um, people know what you're referencing to, our final question is asking them, what do people need to know about your sibling or what is something that you know and uh, about your sibling? So yes, Aurora, go ahead and transition us. I love that. <laughs> well, I was I was saying to Ricardo, I feel like he's, I mean, both of us have wide-ranging curiosity. Uh, Ricardo, I think, embodies my our father's um, characteristics of being silly and kind. But um, that Ricardo has a kind of stability and rootedness mm-hmm. where that I don't, and it's trauma related in part. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot about because I, I was I was sexually trafficked as a kid, having nothing to do with my family. Oh wow! But I have the hyper vigilance of a trauma survivor, right? And I can suss out a room really quickly in particular ways. I'm I'm mobile in the landscape, and I'm having to learn rooting at this stage in my life in a particular way and you know I I also have not worked collectively very much because I'm chronically ill because I have a lot of trauma stuff to deal with I need more control about the environment of of the environment in which I create than working in a collective can offer me that's right I need silence I need to rest when I need to rest. I need less stimulation. And so I live on the top of a mountain and I see people only when I want to see people. Right. Um, whereas Ricardo has worked in a lot of collective settings and is good at that. And is it's just rooted in, in a way that I always find stabilizing in our conversations. Mm-hmm. I really love and that. I don't feel like stability is necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's yeah. been hard on me. But I think that there are some ways it's made me able to throw myself in a new direction. I mean, my, my move back to Puerto Rico, the decision kind of made me, but I was sitting in a river and suddenly realized, oh, it's time to come 
Yeah. And six months later, I was here. Mm -hmm. So those are some kind of differences and richnesses that we bring to the way that we do our work. Thank you for that, Aurora. And I just want to say, I'm sorry for that, that what happened to you. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I know you're a survivor and I know that part, but you know, the distinctions matter too. And I'm grateful for the storytelling, the way that you have woven and and what you've made of it. Ricardo, I'd love to hear what people should know about Aurora, uh, the differences, (laughs) you know, like what you want to add to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I would start with echoing from Aurora what we have in common. Mm-hmm. in terms of inheriting some of the qualities that our parents be- bequeathed to us mm-hmm. of both the generosity and and the hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. Also, I think my mother's experience of growing up in an abusive family, um, and one of the things I inherited from her is that this is metaphorical, but she's somebody who would not set foot on a wooden bridge without first testing the boards with one foot to make sure they weren't rotten, right? Right. Um, and I just want to say one thing about my experience before going directly into your question, that that gave me layers of needing to understand my environment better. I mean, once when I was in high school, I was approached by a member of the Blackstone Rangers who was trying to recruit me and telling me, you have to go to a meeting. You know, you have to come to a meeting tonight of the Rangers. This is where it's going to be. And it was like, no, I didn't want to be recruited. And so, you know, I made some excuse that I'm going to be in a Panther defense meeting or something, which probably was bullshit, but, you know, they had enough prestige that maybe I could get me out of the meeting. And another older kid who had kind of assigned himself to be my protector later told me that that kid was actually a disciple. And if I had shown up at the meeting, which was a disciples meeting, he would be able to beat me up, uh, you know, and gain status in the gang because he'd say, hey, this kid's a, a, a ranger and he's coming here to meet with the ranger. It's like, it's like wow. these layers of trying to, there's layers to decipher right? Um, One of the things I have to say with Aurora is, and we touched on this this morning also, is that Aurora's experience of waves of trauma, I think of, I imagine as clinging to the side of a boat with waves, which means you don't know, you can't see the horizon, you can't see what's coming after. And one of the things that I deeply know about Aurora is her incredible willpower. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a creature who will not give up mm-hmm. <laughs> and has set goals for herself, even though the landscape that would allow you to see a way to get there is obscured. Right. But she could see where she wanted to be and has just hung in there and while carrying burdens that I can barely imagine, you know, in terms of. The, the kinds of obstacles put in, in one's way, the way, things that I can take for granted that I am able to do because I'm not carrying those weights in terms of the kinds of injuries to my body that Corada has experienced with hers mm-hmm. and has come through with those qualities that we loved so much in our parents intact of humor and serious and silliness and curiosity and integrity and absolutely hope and hope not as a shallow practice of Mm -hmm. optimism 
but as a deep knowledge of possibility and resilience. Hmm. I said that kind of circles me back to a metaphor that Ricardo and I both use about steering by a star while our feet are in the mud. Mm. You know, that there's that what you just said, Ricardo, about my continuing to point myself when I can't see the landscape is that you and I both learned astronomy in a sense from our parents. We, we learned to steer by stars that can get obscured by the, the, the weather, but they don't go away. When the weather clears, there they are, and you can readjust your course. That's right. And that that star sense that we were given, we both have, and we're both able to use to get us through the different things that life has handed us. Mm. And it's certainly what, you know, in the face of um, really awful abuse, allowed me to ask the question what had to happen to my abusers to make them be like this which set me on a path of really thinking about trauma and how we undo trauma in order to undo oppression and but it was that 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 sense of always steering by a liberation star that is above whatever the turmoil of the moment is that has, I, I think, guided both of us along our separate but intertwining and crisscrossing paths. Beautiful. Thank you. I, uh, I love the way y'all speak. You're such poets, you know, like I'm laughing because we're heading towards the top culture segment of our thing. And I'm like, y'all, y'all are top culture. <laughs> like, you know, just listen Literally to you speak top. and <laughs> listening to top. you. Um, weave these stories, you know, I, we keep having the experience, especially with folks who are on the older side of organizer life of being like, write a memoir together, <laughs> you know, like, like mm-hmm. it's so beautiful to hear these stories. And um, as we pivot, you know, we're, we can keep this last piece short and and just kind of land this plane together um, is the top culture, you know, what is helping you survive that is music, that is entertainment, that is art, that is books, you know, um, and Autumn can start us off to model what it looks like. Um, I've got a few and, and then we'll wrap up, but I'm like, I can't wait to hear what (laughs) y'all are listening to and reading. Autumn, what do you have? Well, okay. Really quickly. Um, I think I've brought this person up before, but I follow this person on Instagram who goes by Lavender Freddie. Yes. And they have been running this project on Instagram called the Sunscreen Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll just read a brief description of it. Every day, Lavender Freddie will post findings inspired by and in response to American soul singer, songwriter, and producer Marvin Gaye's 11th studio album, What's Going On? The case will close on December 31st, 2021. So, and each... Each finding literally is it's like a clip of um, a speech that someone giving at a conference or a commercial or I, I, it's really hard to describe. Yeah. But it's it is this compilation of just instances, moments, some of them going back 50, 60 years, some of them contemporary that are in some way responding to the question, what's going on? Like what is going on in our current wow. context? And it's 
fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating. I And I think my understanding is that all of the piece that they are putting onto Instagram, they're also putting onto their website. So if you search okay. Lavender Freddy sunscreen conspiracy, you'll be able to find all the material. You don't have to be on Instagram oh to get it. Oh my gosh, so there are pages and recommend. pages it's, and pages of this. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Okay. That's so exciting. Thank you for giving me the next place that I will go and fall into a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> how about the Levin's Moraleses? What do y'all have? I finally, after decades, wrote a letter of appreciation to Silvio Rodriguez, the Cuban new song movement singer songwriter. His music has gotten me through more hard times than pretty much anyone else. As a revolutionary poet, writing about being a revolutionary poet, and just his music is the lyrics are just so gorgeous. Ojalá que las hojas no te toquen el cuerpo cuando caigan, para que no las puedas convertir en cristal. So that's one thing is I, I go to the uh, Latin American new song movements in general, because then I don't feel like I'm alone. I feel this continent wide upsurge of poetry and music that's both of rage and joy. Um, I love reading the science that is overturning long held beliefs. So right now I am just ecstatically delving into and jumping around inside Paulette Steve's book, The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. Mm. There've been all this fuss in the news, how they found these prints and, oh, people have been here longer. Well, people have been here way, 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 yep. way longer than that. And her new book is taking on the colonialism of archaeology and the, the vested interest in pretending that people have only been in the Western Hemisphere, so-called, uh, for 13,000 mm -hmm. years or so, when in fact, because that, that frames the Americas as right. new world and as nature versus culture. And there's evidence of people being here 100,000 years ago. There are cave sites in Brazil with paintings that are 60,000 years old. So I yes. just love it when when uh, science messes with oppression. I could read that stuff all day. And Beautiful. I do. Thank you. Ricardo, what about you? Aurora, I think it was you who sent me the book Against the Grain about the sort of rise of cities and um, just turning ancient history on its head in delightful ways. Mm. Um, but a lot, it's just an interesting thing that's happened in my life is that for a really, really long time now, I have not been reading fiction. I used to read fiction all the time, yeah. but it's like reading about how animals navigate, reading about seeds and spores, you know, which, shares its root, its Greek root with diaspora. I thought that was wonderful. Um, with um, the language of birds. And these things, and I just want to close with a gift, which is kind of a synthesis because many of these things lack the depth of, of real um, sort of context that Aurora was talking about in the books that she's reading, but they provide wonderful hints and this gift is just what I've been synthesizing 
Um, recently, I was out in a little valley in western Minnesota, just sitting on a little camp chair I took down there. And this message came from me from my surroundings. And it's kind of synthesis of what I've been learning. And the message is all is well. And I was thinking about what I'd heard about bird language, songbirds. If a pair of songbirds, like a couple are separated from each other, they have something that is called a companion call. Mm. Every couple of minutes, one will chirp, and then the other will respond, chirp. Mm. And that means mm. I'm over here and I'm okay. I'm over here and I'm okay. And if I go chirp and I don't hear a chirp back, I'll do it again more insistently. Yeah. And then a couple more times, and then I'll fly to the last place I heard a chirp. And it's only against this backdrop of all is well that we can know what isn't well. Oh, wow. I love that. Body, we, each, <laughs> we each have about 90 billion neurons in our nervous system that are singing the song of how things are throughout our body. And everything's always changing. But the underlying message is all is well behind your eyelid. All is well between your toes. All is well on the surface of your liver. All is well, all is well, all is well. And only with that can we know it isn't well. And to think about, to look outside and see the trees and the grass and all of these things from the cellular to the organic to the species level doing what they need to do, that's how we identify where the wounds of oppression are. Yes. But it's overwhelmingly powerful. And every ecosystem or body rebounds and heals itself just when you just stop the freaking oppression whether it's a coral reef or soil, you just got to stop this. So that's, that's what I'm sitting on, right? And it's no one thing, but it's all the voices together. It's like, oh, I need to know that. That's a path toward liberation. Is to know so much as well that oppression, racism is a dusting on the top of the topsoil of our history. I thought I was going to get out of this conversation without crying. <laughs> I was like spoiled. I was like, <laughs> it's not possible. Uh, y'all just, y'all dive so deeply. And um, that particularly, you know, I've been, uh, I've, I've got a lot of my own uh, ability shifting and illness things that I'm dealing with right now. And I've been studying Ayurvedic uh, approaches because, you know, the Ayurvedic approach is that it's all as well. And you're returning to health. And it's just like, let's remember health. Let's get back there. And I love, I love that the most ancient belief systems that we can learn from all have this in common of just like, it's all good. Just stop fucking it up, <laughs> you know, and just stop, you know, stop the oppression, stop trying to contain something that is free and it'll all be okay. And, um, so the thing I want to offer into top culture does actually feel related. Um, I've got three little brief things. One is I just finished reading the novel, the debut novel from Robert Jones Jr., The Prophets, which is about these uh, gay black men who are enslaved people and the love story of them and what they faced and what they overcame um, and, and what freedom looked like and didn't look like. It's absolutely stunning. I, I can't not think of it. Like I'm walking around all the time thinking of it, of of the love story and the images that Robert offers us with it. Um, he's known as a son of Baldwin on online and is, I, I, you read it, you're just like, yep, <laughs> yep, that, that's super accurate. Um, I'm listening to the audiobook of Tarana Burke uh, reading Unbound, which is her memoir. 
of, of her own story and also the founding of the Me Too movement. And it's also one where I'm, I'm taking it chapter at a time, letting myself grieve and cry and feel into my own history as a survivor and feel into things. I'm like, oh, no, one, I haven't ever heard anyone talk about this, you know, about the medical trauma we experience um, as uh, young people going in for our first pap smears and things like that. I'm like, oh my God, like that, no one talks about it and, and we need to talk about it. Um, and then uh, I, I'm, I'm getting, I'm becoming a meme curator on the internet and I'm really like becoming the, you know, like I, I'm like, I think it's another language maybe that I'm trying to learn, like how to, how to work with this language that is image and humor. Um, because it speaks to me. Like there's something that happens when I see a really good meme or a good collection of memes. Where I'm like, Ooh, that's, there's some art, there's some articulation, there's something happening here. So I've been playing with it. And my latest obsession is memes that are like, you're in her DMS. I'm doing something, you know, like I'm in her bed <laughs> or like you're in her DMS. <laughs> like I just cooked her an amazing five course meal. We're not the same. Right. And it just, it goes through and says all these different things. It's so shady and, and delight. It's like really delightful in a way that I find to be like what intimacy can look like sometimes, you know, and I'm, but it's also part of me that's like, I'm like, I just know that there's still people in the world who are like, what is a DM? It just is amusing to me that I'm like, there's, this is a whole conversation. And there's other people who are like, I don't live online and it might all be a simulation. And like, how do we, how do we turn it off? Right. <laughs> so I, for me that the pop culture of those kind of themes where I'm like, oh, like, what does it look like when you look into a meme all the way until you look through it and you come back around to like, oh, what you're discussing is intimacy. And I feel like that meme thread or that meme, um, that hashtag, that trend is actually one of these things where it's like, you're having some online projected experience with this person and I'm having a real life experience of intimacy. And I'm like, I love the idea of the shadiness being about having authentic experiences of intimacy offline. <laughs> it just makes me feel good. I'm like, okay, the kids are going to be all right. So we made it through this incredible deep conversation. Um, thank you for diving deeply into the waters with us and sharing so much of yourselves. And we're just going to do our credits and let you go. And just please let me thank the two of you for being the gift to the world that you are. And it's always a pleasure knowing that I share it with you. Oh man. We just literally can't believe that this is part of the thing that we get to do. I'm, this is a geek out session for sure. <laughs> I'm just sort of like, it's just a swoon. It's a swoon fest for me. So. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. If you um, want to support what you're hearing, you can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page, patreon.com slash End of the World Show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're an iPhone person or just shoot us like a email in the Gmail that tells us what you think. 
That's right. Or tell a friend. Um, we are produced and edited by the swoontastic Zach Rosen. And our podcast is transcribed by the incomparable um, and recently birthdayed Jess Pinkham. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday, Jess. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. Whoop, whoop. Love y'all. <laughs>